0: show you a better way well hi folks this is jack Spearco with another edition of the survival podcast it's always one man's view of the changing world the changing times and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't today is thursday august the 11th 2022 and i'm Announcing today, though it won't take effect till next week, a change in the show production schedule. It's not a big one. It's a little one. But the reason we ended up moving the Expert Council show to Thursdays, which is what we've been doing for quite a while now, is because I was doing a Miyagi Mornings-type thing on Fridays. And so that necessitated not, you couldn't do both of them on Friday, right? And I was I actually had at, at that time developed a way to take Fridays off. Taking Fridays off actually resulted in me working a, a lot harder to do so. Uh, so I, I shifted and started doing an Outback with Jack style episode, Miyagi Morning style episode called What You Want on Fridays, but it was a new production episode rather than reuse of content. And I realized this morning, you're not doing that anymore. And the Expert Council Show is actually my easiest show of the week that gets me done early, and my grandkids are only here half day on Friday, so starting next week, I'm going to shift the Expert Council Show back to Friday, so it will once again be Friday, 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 and the Monster Show of the Week, for those of you that remember those years. So we're going to go back to that, meaning Thursday will be just Jack, it'll be like an Outback with Jack, or we'll go into a subject, it'll all depend on the week, but the new schedule will be Monday, Just Jack, of some capacity. Tuesday, a Bitcoin breakout episode, which will usually have someone on for an interview. Wednesday, we'll have an interview with someone that is in the general theme of the Survival Podcast. Thursday, again, we're back to Just Jack. And Friday, Expert Council Q&A. With that, before we get into today's stuff, what we're going to be talking about today, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is the Wealth Studying Podcast with John Pugliano. You're going to hear John's excellent take on what's going on in the economy today uh, in the expert council lineup I'll tell you about in just a minute. He's a guy you need to be listening to, and he's also a guy that's learning a new trick. So let me throw out a plug for John and a plug for listening to John on the Fountain.fm app where you can... You know, reward John for his wise advice with Satoshi since he didn't think he would make any money on Fountain. And gosh darn it, he is. He hasn't hasn't fessed up with his total sat balance yet. But, hey, it's time to help that old dog learn new tricks. John Pugliano, Wealthsteading.com, learn about his podcast. But if you're not listening to your podcasts on the Fountain app, you hate money. Don't hate money. And, you know, kind of spread the wealth around a little bit. Uh, So check out John at Wealthsteading.com. Next up today, we have ButcherBox.com. I love ButcherBox. You know why? Because every month, a great big box of delicious meat shows up at my gate. It's all packed in dry ice nicely frozen, and I pack it into my inventory, well inventoried now, series of uh, deep freezers, and then I feast on it for the next month. You can do that, too. In fact, I love ButcherBox so dadgone much. They are the only sponsor I have... That actually pays me in product. I have never actually taken a penny from ButcherBox. Not a penny, not a Satoshi. I have only accepted meat in payment. Sometimes barter really is better. There's never a month they don't want to be on the show, and there's never a month that I don't want meat. So it works out in this particular situation. If you give ButcherBox a try, you'll see why I am just in love with them as a supplier, a vendor, and a sponsor. And if you are an MSB member, they will pay for your membership every year times two, even if you're paying full price and didn't get in on a sale price. Because you'll get $10 off every single month of your box forever as long as you stay a customer. That's $120 a year in discounts on a beautiful box of meat that comes right to your house with pastured pork, pastured poultry, grass-fed beef, and some awesome seafood options as well. Check them out today at ButcherBox.com. So with that, guys, um, I, I do want to read a few boostergrams today, and one in particular I'm going to come back to and give some advice to this young man. I am so impressed with this young man. Uh, he boosted me 34 SATs. His handle is 12-year-old survivalist. He says, Hi, Jack. My name is Max. I sent another boost, but I misspelled a lot of things. I want to do something with Bitcoin, but I don't have a credit card or any other way to fund a Bitcoin. Uh, I'll come back to that one, Max. Let me read some of the other folks here who threw some boosts at us recently this week. Atwood Survival says, Great first episode. That was where Jack interviewed, was interviewed by Ken Berry. Uh, count me in on supporting alternatives to GoFundMe and do things like fund the Canadian truckers. It was a wake-up call for myself. I'll be checking out and plan to fund future projects on geyser.fund. That from Lightning Maximalist who boosted 5,000 sats. Thank you, sir. Keep on keeping on from Guy Smiley with 1,000 sats. Uh, Charlie67J, please continue highlighting the Lightning Network and Lightning-enabled asset platforms. The way to help grow is to spread uh, the word. You are the bleeding edge of this important and great content. Thank you. Husky sent 500 sats. Jitterhead sent 150 sats. Info Apocalypse sent 100 sats and said another great episode. LN doesn't get enough discussion on many of the BTC shows. I think that will change. Tomorrow, Racket, Rackman said great show, 10,000 sats. Thank you. 5x5 five five Apparel boosted 600 sats. Hobbit Nuts, 500 sats, Boost. And uh, thanks to all of you that send Boost, I can't read them all. Again, we would just spend 20 minutes a show reading Boost. Uh, I, I'm, I'm humbled by that. I do want to sh- throw out a shout to Hobbit Nuts, because I hear him get mentioned on the Intergalactic Boombox podcast, so we have a common supporter there. I think that's a cool little podcast you might want to check out. It's once a week, and it's like 15 minutes long. And it's funny as hell. Uh, I wanted to just throw a little advice out to Max. So, you're 12, (laughs) you have to make smart decisions, and you have to rely on your parents to help you with those decisions. But you also have, obviously, a way to use apps if you're listening and boosting on fountain. So, if you already learned quite a bit, what I would recommend, Max, is that you speak to your parents and you earn your own money, however that is, and you say, I want to be able to use a little bit of money, you know, whatever it is, and be able to put it in my bank account. And they can help you set up a bank account. Once you have that, I would simply install the Strike app. And that would be a really great way to buy small amounts of Bitcoin on the fly and then instantly withdraw. Uh, And you can send that to a Lightning wallet or you can send it to a non-custodial wallet like Exodus. When you get enough, you you can figure out how to set up a hardware wallet. But starting slow and small, a good non-custodial wallet like Exodus or Coinomi or anything like that is going to be fine for that. But you're going to have to talk to your parents. And I want to throw out a congrats to this young man for two things, for two big things. One for seeing the opportunity here, and again with caution, and don't go investing your college fund all in. That's I don't invest all my money. You shouldn't either. Uh, but bigger, bigger compliment to Max. Max left me that boost on what show? Was it about Bitcoin? No, he left me on that sh- that that boost on downward class migration, a decade in. That was a high-level freaking economic reality show right there. For a kid that's 12 years old to be independently investigating concepts like this is going to put that young man so far ahead of his peers, if you can even call them peers when you have a 12-year-old digging into content like that. Continue your journey, young man. Continue your journey. Be the most informed of your generation. And as you get the opportunity to be the most active and actionable of your generation, and you will lead your generation. Thank you for your boost. And thank you for paying attention at a time when, honestly, at your age, I was paying attention to girls and I was paying attention to fish. I wasn't paying attention to anything like this. So imagine what you can achieve as you grow up. With that, what are we going to do today? Who are we have in the expert council? Well, leading off, we'll have Ron Paul with the Liberty Highlights. The FBI raid will backfire. 87,000 IRS agents to target the rich is BS. And war with Russia and or China would not be a TV-style war. We also will have a lightning list of 20 handyman tips from Tim Toolman Cook. Planting to improve pasture for poultry from Darby Simpson. Nicole Sauce, I want it's time to throw in the towel on a business. Nick Ferguson, determining the spacing of swales and trees. John Pugliano with thoughts on the Inflation Reduction Act. And me, myself, and I, I will have a segment today that will be also out in a live stream. No one is coming to save you. The only change will be the one you make. With that, let's hear from Ron Paul, Dan McAdams, and Chris Rossini. This is the entrance
1: of Trump's house. And here is a federal agent with a machine gun at the entrance to Trump's house. What was it they were looking for? Well, they were looking for some presidential papers that hadn't been turned into the National Archives yet. That was the sum total of, the, of what they were doing by sending these armed agents to break into his house, as you say, they literally brought a safe cracker and they broke into his safe. It was empty. There was nothing in it. So this whole idea that you send in these uh, these armed federal agents with machine guns to get some presidential papers, I don't know, I don't know what the political fallout is going to be from this.
2: Well, I, I think it could be very negative. Remember, <clears throat> and I know you do, is what happened when they decided to use uh uh covid as an instrument for uh cracking down on the people's liberties and that turned into be a monster but there was a time when the people turned against that and right now most people know that it was a farce and they're they've backed away from that yet they, they're still the far left is still trying. They're they're looking to have lockdowns over, <laughs> over monkeypox and yeah, all that yeah, stuff. Oh yeah. But uh, the the lies that the lies that are told, and and this effort. But I think, just like they got tired of the lockdown with COVID, I think the people are going to get tired of this stuff too. Yeah. Uh, I I think the people who really, really hate won't change. They're not going to change. But I think the people, uh, you know, the the, the normal people and the people who have at least an open mind will hear about it. They changed their mind on lockdown when it got overbearing. And I think this type of stuff is going to be overbearing. But, uh, you know, it depends on what the Republicans do with this. The Republicans haven't always been, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, uh, pure at heart, you know, in what they do. But I, I would think I, I'm predicting that this will backfire on them. Well, you know,
1: I often feel at a disadvantage, Dr. Paul, because I'm not an expert in economics, and I don't pretend to be. But I look at this, and I feel like a Murray Rothbard or something. (laughs) You know, I feel like a genius. It's like I take all my credit card bills, and I look, and I'm maxed out on all the cards. I call up my wife and say, hey, we need to get 10 more cards and max them out, because that's (laughs) the only way to reduce the debt that we have. I mean, $740 billion. As you know, Dr. Paul, and you've said it so many times, we got into this mess by printing several trillion dollars to fight COVID. Uh, which we know that was a ruse. But so the idea is if you do more of what you've been doing to get yourself in trouble, then you'll somehow get out of trouble. Classic, classic Washington way of dealing with it. But there's one thing that I think is the most ominous, and we talked about this, and thanks to friends at Zero Hedge, and even our enemies at the Free Bacon or the Free Beacon, um, every now and again they're right, right twice a day a broken clock is right. But they reported on one, I think, very important part of this bill. If we can put up that first clip, This is chilling. Anyone with the brain is going to look at this and have a panic attack. Free beacon. Dems pose to make IRS larger than the Pentagon, State Department, FBI, and Border Patrol combined. They are going to double the size of the IRS. That's going to get us out of our mess.
2: To think that they're getting thousands of more people, yeah. you know, to and then, and then lie to them. Oh, we're only going to go after the rich. Yeah, like the rich never had a loophole. So that, that's, that to me, that's tragic. That is, you, you know, you picked out the issue that really tells you the, the sincerity yeah. of them trying to do anything decently, you know, on this. So that in itself should be enough for nobody to even look at a bill like this. The Fed and empire are two sides
3: of the same coin and uh, in many respects our nation's history we've had two Americas in many respects and they're both polar opposites uh, in the beginning there was individual liberty sound money non-intervention in foreign affairs and that lasted all the way up until the late 1800s early 1900s and then everything changed once the Federal Reserve was created, which was in 1913. And if any, you know, our history buffs know when World War I started. That was 1914. And then in 1917, the U.S. made a fateful decision to cross over the ocean and get involved in World War I, and the world has never been the same since. You know, that was when our empire really, you know, started to, you know, bloom. Uh, a better tip-off would occur later. You know, Americans probably should have noticed once that Pentagon went up that, hmm, you know, this this doesn't look like a nation that's going to mind its own business. And it has not. Our nation has not ever since. And today we are in a precarious situation where we're, you know, dealing with Ukraine, which is on Russia's border, and Taiwan, which is on China's border. These are major, major nuclear powers. And getting involved in wars with them would not be something that we would just watch on TV. We're not just going to lay on the beach, check social media, and see, oh, how's the war with China going? It would be cataclysmic, and our lives would be in danger. So the mentality has to change from this dangerous uh, empire uh, funded by the Fed, and we need to go back a sensible American foreign policy of non-intervention coupled with sound money.
0: So I want to talk about the 87,000 IRS agents, and I want to explain how the IRS actually operates when it comes to raising revenue. There's two primary groups that they raise revenue from, and it's probably neither of the ones that you think it is. Maybe one of them, if you listen to other people talk about it, you would be like, yeah, I know that. There's the second group that really won't be who you think a lot of people think it's billionaires, or at least like multi-millionaires, really rich people. Well, those guys have like, you know, attorneys. Uh, they make audits painful for the IRS. I'm not saying they don't ever go after them. They do. But it's not where they get most of their earnings from. And you need to understand that IRS agents are, are literally judged based on their cost versus how much revenue they bring in to the revenue service. So going after a Donald Trump is going to result in 900 lawyers explaining to you that this is going to take 15 years. So that, that's not a good target. The good target are small family businesses, but they're not $300,000 businesses. There's not generally enough there to really go through the audit process. So in the audit process, you're looking at businesses with a turnover of like $1 to $10 million. These are businesses where if you go in hard enough, you'll find something. You'll find, And it'll be a mistake or something. You'll find something. There are also businesses that you can go into that audit with, we could just settle this, or you go into the audit very early in the audit and you say, look, you guys owe us $400,000, something like that. And they won't have it, but they have enough cash flow and the business is important enough to them that they'll hamstring themselves for five years to pay you your $400,000, and they'll end up paying seven hundred with interest and penalties. So that's one place, and that is the sweet spot, and that's where the auditors go. This is 87,000 agents. We think we're going to have 87,000 people out conducting audits. Go we'll apologize to a tree for the oxygen. You'll hear about more later in my segment. But that's not how that works either. There's not 87,000 people they can hire that are qualified to do that level, of financial investigative work. They don't exist. And the ones that are good enough to do it, you're gonna to have to compete with a private sector that wants them to defend against you. So they'll pay them more. So you need people that are really switched on from an economic investigative standpoint, and they're most likely earlier in their, early in their career, but there'll be a segment of them. That's what they'll be. They'll be going to full blown audits. The other group though is where most of them will be focused. And you know that they're going to do this because they said they wouldn't. The way you know government is lying is it, it, the way you know what government's going to do is whatever it expressly says it will not do. It is going to do. So the IRS has already come out and said, we absolutely will not target the middle class with our 87,000 agents. So you know they will, but you don't know how. And it's because most of you, uh, you file like 1040s or 1040 EZs, you don't itemize and you're not the group, and it's not just an income issue. It's small business people and people with complex returns, people that have a lot of stock trades, people that have small businesses and expenses and all, but they don't audit us. That's not what they do. They look for discrepancies. They find a discrepancy. They judge you guilty of the discrepancy, and they send you a bill with a demand of payment, and it'll say right on the bill, this is not an audit. I know because I've received a letter like this three times. And what I do with that letter is I go to my really good accountant, and they write a letter, and it says you can F yourself in the A for the following reasons, and we're not going to pay you. And then it'll usually be months later as they drag their feet, because if they can still make you pay, they're increasing the penalties and interest that you've incurred. And they'll email you back, or they'll mail you back. This is a physical letter they'll mail you back and say, You still owe X and now you owe Y because you didn't pay. And then you pay at that point because you have to. So, in my experience, I've had three of these letters. Two, my accountant basically told them to cram it up their cram hole. Some of you know what movie is that from. And they, they literally admitted they were wrong. The third instance, I actually left a small stock trade off of our return. It was a legitimate error, but do you know what they said? You sold this stock, and you didn't declare a basis because you didn't report it, so I think I stole the stock for like $5,000. They wanted me to pay as though I had an extra $5,000 of income, as though that stock was delivered to me by a stork like a baby on a cartoon. Where do you think I got the stock? I had to buy it. So we went back in and declared the basis, and I think I had made like $800 on the trade. So that was $800. The accountant calculated the income and all, and we sent them a check for like 250 bucks. I don't remember what it was, or something like that, with a letter explaining it. And then we got a letter weeks later, months later actually, that said, You're correct, and we consider the matter closed. That's what these 87,000 people are going to do. They're going to be compliance people who are going to send out letters for discrepancies demanding payment. In other words, the IRS just increased its Department of Collections. You know, like when you get a call, Sir, I, I am calling you from so-and-so collection agency. You didn't pay your phone bill in 2004, and we have inherited your debt like that. Except they're not going to make phone calls. They're going to send out letters. That's going to be their main purpose. And you know who that targets? Absolutely. Dead Square Center middle-class people, most of whom do not know what I just told you and do not know how to defend themselves from it and will simply pay the bill. That's what's going to happen. And you know it's going to happen because they promised it wouldn't. And when the government promises something won't happen, it always does. Remember, the COVID shot will never be mandatory. Anyway, moving on to something better, 20 handyman tips from Tim Toolman Cook.
4: Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop to answer some questions, do a segment for the expert council. So let's dive right in. This week is a segment of handyman tips and tricks. I put together 20 of them for you, so we're going to try to knock out 20 handyman tips here in under seven minutes. So let's get going. Number one, if you want to get perfectly good, really straight cuts with your circular saw when you're cross-cutting a board, use a square hold the square down, clamp it into place with your left hand, and then just slide along that edge. It is a quick and easy way to get a nice straight cut. If you want to get a nice straight cut, the full length of a sheet of plywood and you don't have a table saw, clamp a long board or a level the full length of the sheet of plywood, offset it for the amount of the foot of the circular saw, and then go to town. Number three, if you want to get the same length of cut every single time and you're using, say, a workbench or a couple of sawhorses, go out and measure to where you want the length of the cut and then put down a stopper. Take a sacrificial piece of wood, screw it down so that you can butt up against it and you can repeat, a you know, a thousand cuts all at the exact same length with never needing to measure them. Now, if you want to get a good, accurate, straight measurement line every time when you're using a tape measure instead of marking just one line mark a v going from either side of the measurement that makes it easier for when you're bringing your square down to make a straight line right across when you are ripping plywood on sawhorses use some sacrificial wood long pieces that you drop down on it and you can cut through that allows you to cut without the bottom kicking out and binding Uh, Set your circular saw depth to just a little bit thicker than the sheet material you are cutting. That will give you a slightly faster and a much smoother cut. And of course, you're much less likely to hit something underneath. Number seven, on the tape measure, if you look at the red marks on a tape measure, they are for every 16 inches. If you didn't know it, it'll speed you up. Number eight, set up an assembly line to make things faster. Do all your cuts at once. Do all your measurements at once. Instead of jumping from tool to tool, you will find that'll be one of the quickest ways to speed up any project you are working on. When you got to pick up number nine, when you need to pick up a long piece of wood, pick it up from the middle, not from the ends. You're not going to be dragging it in the dirt. It's going to be easier to lift, and you're much less prone to injury. Number 10, take a minute and set up your workspace ahead of time. Sawhorses, work table, anytime you can do things that are at waist height, it's much easier. So set up a work surface area. Know the, tr- the path you're going to be traveling, any of that, so that it makes it safe and quicker and more efficient when you're working. When assembling things, open everything up ahead of time. This has made me a lot of money with Ikea stuff. Open everything up, clean up all the packaging, throw it away, get it out of the way so that you know you have all the parts, nothing's damaged, and then you can work and get going so you're not wasting time opening stuff once you get going. And along with that, number 12, use magnetic trays when assembling things so that if you have a bunch of screws here, you throw them in there and you won't lose them. Number 13, use sharp blades for a safer cut. I know that doesn't always necessarily, um, you know, compute with some people, but sharper blades mean a safer blade, means you're going to get better cuts, it's going to be easier on your tool, and it's going to be easier on your battery. Uh, If you're worried about blowout, use painter's tape. So if you have to put a line on some material... Put some painter's tape down, then mark the line through the painter's tape, then cut through that. It'll help save on blowout for nice plywood cuts. Uh, know the width of your tape measure ahead of time so that you can do inside measurements quicker and easier. I wish all tape measures were a standard width. My DeWalt is 3 and 7 eighths, which makes it a pain in the butt every time I want to figure out an inside measurement. But if you know that ahead of time, it's going to save your... Uh, brain just a bit. Number 16, know the width of the plate on your circular saw. So from the inside of the blade to the outside of that plate, memorize that measurement. It's going to make it a lot easier when you're setting up straight cuts and long rips on plywood. Number 17, when joining two butt ends of a deck board, bring your screws in on a slight 45 degree angle. Two reasons for that. Number one, the board is less likely to split. And number two, it's going to pull the joints together instead of leaving a nasty gap there. Number 18, when you're working by yourself, put a nail in one end of the piece of siding. So if you're siding, putting up 12 foot pieces of siding, just go over and tack a nail up into one side, then walk the siding up the ladder and start snapping it into place and putting nails on it. It's a great way to work by yourself without needing an extra set of hands. Uh, use temporary brackets to hold up long lengths of gutter in place. So again, you know, eaves trough gutter, there are 10, Sometimes 12 feet long. If you need to get them up into place, just tack up a temporary bracket below where you're going to hang it. That way you're not supporting the entire weight of something and it's not going to kink on you because I've done that before. And then finally, back to working by yourself. If you need an extra set of hands, set up another stepladder, set your material on top of the stepladder, then walk it up your side. You'll be surprised at the amount of things you can do all by yourself if you just take some time and figure out how to support it and how to only lift half of the weight of any type of material. So I hope those tips were helpful. We busted through 20 of them for you. If you want to know more about what I'm up to, the quickest and easiest way is to run by toolmantim.co. Run by there. I got the shop section that have a whole bunch of tools, over 250 pieces of product and gear that I've used and abused. And if you want to, run by the YouTube channel. We have three live streams a week, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, 7 o'clock Mountain Time. Come by there, become part of the workshop community. Let us know who you are, share your information with us, ask. And of course, if you have questions for me, send them to Jack and I will knock them out of the park for you and get a segment done up. So guys, as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. Did you like
0: that one? Are you not entertained? If you are, you should follow the Woodshop podcast, which Tim Toolman Cook does. You can find it on, you guessed it, Fountain FM. Next up, we have some tips on improving pasture from Darby Simpson.
5: Hey there, TSP listeners. Darby Simpson of Grass-Fed Life. Back to answer another TSP expert counsel question. This week, we have a question coming in from Texas, from Phil. And Phil asks, what should I plant on three acres of pasture to move pastured meat chickens over this coming fall and winter? What about next spring and summer? He sneaks in a sneaky second question. Details, Zone 8B slash 9A. 35 miles from the gulf in Damon, Texas, currently mixed annual and perennial grasses and weeds. Dark, hard-ass clay. Full, god-awful sun. Think Tatooine. Hasn't been tilled in at least 15 years, just shredded a few times a year. Needs dethatching. No irrigation and windier than an Army chaplain on a D-Day landing craft. Well, Phil, you get an A for effort on the details there, buddy. I'm digging it. Um, so we're going to uh, kind of tag team this question because please bear in mind, you're you're talking to a guy that lives um, in central Indiana, and we get 40 to 45 inches of rain per year here. Uh, you know, a hot day is 95, 98, or 100. We get a handful of those every summer. So, I say all that to say, I'm in a pretty different region than you are, but I do know a thing or two about pastured meat chickens and planting grass because I have personally converted 80 acres of old burned out row crop field um, into perennial grass systems. Uh, 50 acres of that is fenced and we graze it. 30 acres of that is in perennial hay that we make ourselves on farm for our beef enterprise. And Phil, here's what I'm going to tell you. You didn't say anything about cows or sheep or goats or anything of that nature. But when it comes to planting pasture, we always want to plant for a grazing ruminant. You may never get cows. You may never have sheep. You may only ever have meat chickens. Go ahead and plant it as if you're going to have cows or sheep or something in the future. And here's why. Chickens don't care. They literally do not care. Um, they're going to, you know, pick and eat out there. They, they will eat clover. They do like clover, but. That's something you'd plant for cattle. Um, they're more chasing bugs, you know. I mean, yes, they're going to eat some grasses and stuff like that, but really they're, they're more chasing the bugs that your perennial grass system brings in. They can get a decent amount of their intake from the ground, and, and certainly if you use more of a heritage breed chicken, that's, that's going to go up, but if you're going to do a traditional, you know, eight to nine week cross rock meat chicken or you're going to do a 12 to 14 week freedom ranger or something like that they're going to be better right but those cross rocks like man you're doing fantastic if you can get you know 20 30 percent of their intake from the grass they're really meant to consume a lot of grain and get fat fast so Back to my main point, you you really want to plant this with the thought that I might have grazing animals someday, and with that, it, it, your chickens are going to be fine. They're going to be great. Um, now, you mentioned that you know this is really hard clay. That's what I have here. It's it's yellow clay, but you can dig it up and mold it and make baseballs out of it. It's it's really, really hard once it dries, and it's really thick. Um, I would still tell you to consider, if you're going to replant planting this, to maybe go ahead and and, and disc this up. If, if you're going to go to the effort of, of trying to plant something, it's really better to start with a clean slate. Now... You could just throw chickens out there on what you have, save yourself a whole lot of work and trouble and money, and just see how they do. And then if you want, you can, you know, disc it up and plant something later. Uh, you could play around with it. You could disc up a third of it. Because even one acre of this three acre area, is going to be more than enough to run a very large batch of meat chickens, e- even in your region. Uh, one little pro tip, you're going to want to run these guys not in the summer. Okay. As I'm recording this, it's the first week of August. This is the off season for pastured poultry in South Texas. Uh, you're, you're heading into the time of year where you might want to think about getting some chicks started, maybe the 1st of September. But back to your main question. I, look, throw them out there, see how they do. Till it up, plant a third of it. Till it up, plant the whole thing. Uh, I wouldn't really try to go drill seed into this existing stand unless I was able to see it. And, and again, being from central Indiana, I don't know what perennials are going to do really well down there. Now, if you really want to build soil, you would disc this up and you would plant some quick-growing annuals out there, and you'd run cows across it, and then you'd come back in, you'd diss that up again, you'd plant your perennials, and then you'd run ruminants out in front of your chickens to, to keep the grass short. You don't want that grass to really be more than about six, eight inches tall because they start to struggle from the heat. Um, and then you'd run your chickens over it. But as I'm talking through this, trying to give you some ideas here, Uh, that, that would be the, the, the tact that I would take. I don't know if you've ever even ran meat birds. You might just want to run some meat birds to see if you even like messing with the, the things. Uh, they are a lot of work, but they're very worthwhile. And again, I'm not sure what you've got out there now, but they're going to pick at it and eat some of it. And it'll be the best tasting chicken you've ever had. And it'll be one of the most satisfying things you've ever done because you've, Raised it yourself, but um, again, you know, if you really want to get into this, you're going to want to do some more research. And I'm I'm actually going to let Jack come in and talk about perennials that you could consider for that area of Texas, because again, I really just don't know. But he's going to have some really good ideas, and he can follow up on what I've had to offer you and give you some additional thoughts. But um with three acres, Phil, I'm just saying, you could get yourself a couple of cows out there. You know, if you're doing this as a homestead thing, you know, you get one bigger cow and then you get a smaller buddy for him. And then the bigger guy, you know, he's going to graduate, go to freezer camp. Now the little guy is the bigger guy, so you bring in a little guy to be his buddy and you just kind of do this every year. Cows really like to have buddies. Uh, they are a true herd animal. And interestingly enough, in a big herd, they actually kind of pair off. You'll see groups of two form within larger groups. So everybody's kind of got a pal to hang out with. So just saying you might want to think about that, three acres isn't that much defense. And, man, you can really really manage your pasture well and improve what your meat birds are going to do just by adding a couple of cows out there. So those are my thoughts. Don't go drill into this existing pasture. Maybe just use the existing pasture as it is. If you wanted to, if you could find like a clover or an alfalfa that does that well south, you you could try drilling that into this just to see how it comes up. I've had mixed success with that personally. Um, if you want to go all in, disc it up, plant annuals, then more perennials. But since you do have a good base there if you disc that up, you probably could go straight to perennials. You would not have to do annuals. But uh you'd want to let that get a little bit mature before you put birds on it because they are really hard on freshly planted grass. So, Phil, that's what I have for you, buddy. I hope this was helpful. For all of you listening, please check out our resources at grassfedlife.com co. There's free resources, paid-for resources, and some more stuff in the works. So stay tuned. Thanks, everybody. Take care. So rather
0: than give you a list of perennial seed, I'm not. I'm going to give you more of a tactic, and I'm going to give you an annual. So I'm going to start out with an annual that no matter what you do, if I'm dealing with hard, compact clay, I'm going to plant. And that is daikon radish, and I'm probably going to go all the way and buy the really good high-end, it's not really expensive either, tillage radish, which is a a, a version of daikon that has specifically been bred to be as vicious as possible and attacking hard pan. And I'm going to want to get that planted in early, early fall. So September-ish, you're further south than me, it's hotter there, but your rains are coming um, mid-September. And it, if it gets established, even if you get some frost, it will handle frost. It will handle freeze once established. So what's going to happen is it's going to grow really tall and put seed heads on and bring in lots of pollinators, all kinds of good stuff. But it's going to grow as much as two feet down in the ground like a giant white carrot. And it is going to rot. And it is going to open up. Everywhere there's one of those, it's going to be like somebody came out with a, a drill with about a four-inch, uh, maybe more like a two-inch auger bit, and augered down two foot into your soil and filled it with worm castings. So that that I'm going to do no matter what I'm going to do. I would plant trees, and I would not tree the place. I would plant trees. I would go out. I would mark contour. You don't have to put swales in. Maybe you do, maybe you do. Maybe it would be good. Maybe it wouldn't. I don't know. I can't see the property. I don't know what your landforms like. I don't know anything about it. But you would still plant your trees basically on contour. I would plant trees at fairly wide spacing, and I would plant, I would find a tree that is going to be aggressive and fast growing for your ecosystem and have other beneficials. So I wouldn't necessarily be like, I want to plant fruit trees or nut trees or whatever. Trees that grow and provide shade for chickens so that we can tractor chickens through there, and we can have half the tractor within the shade of the tree at any given time if we're doing a large, like, electro-net tractoring methodology or something like that. If we're using more of a contained tractor, at least we can get the chickens where they're going to be shaded a lot of the time during the day. And I'm going to use those trees to open that ground even further, and I'm going to take this into a civil pasture system. Rather than disk, odds are the appropriate seed... For what you want to grow is on your property. It is up to you to graze it enough or knock it down enough with chickens or do enough of whatever to it to trigger that growth. And the other thing that will trigger that growth is disturbance of the soil. So honestly, even if you dissed it, it would probably start growing like crazy. Even if you didn't seed it, if you dissed it at the right time. I would see if you can find someone in your area, because buying one for three acres is not going to make sense. If you can find somebody with a yeoman's plow, which is basically just going to plow slits in the ground, it's not going to actually turn the soil over, it's just going to open up channels. And I would plow it, depending on its, its, its land form, either just straight on contour, mark contour lines, follow the contour lines, or I would plow it 1% off contour using a key line plow, and moving the water... From the ridges, from the valley to the ridge, and you might—I think you have valley and ridges because it might be laying pretty flat. But there, there's always contour, and there's always effectively a valley and a ridge. I can't get deep into how to do that, but that's the approach that I would take with this piece of land. Now, if you really, 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 really want to do whatever you want to do right, and you don't know what you're doing, and you're not sure what to do, and you're gonna—this is all rather expensive. Then I would get. I don't know, a good permaculture consultant to come down there on the land and do the design and the plan for you, possibly even aid with the implementation. Because even though that will be an expense, it will save you money and mistake. Because even if you listen to everything Darby and I say and you really think about it and you've never done this before, um, you're about to hear a little bit later from Nick Ferguson. I would, with where you're at, it's not that far of a travel, I would talk to Nick Ferguson about doing an on-site consult for you. I really would. That's, that's If it was my land, knowing everything I know, I'd have Nick down, and I would go over it with him, because I know that our two heads together are better than mine alone. Just some thoughts. But that's that's kind of the approach. I want daikon in this no matter what. I want to disturb the soil, and I would want to graze this if I could, even for a time. So you might reach out in your local community and see if there is somebody... They could do a couple pass through grazings for you. It doesn't even have. If you're you're not going to continuously graze it, it doesn't even have to be done perfectly. Having a basic graze through of sheep or cattle, and that'll knock down a lot of everything, and it'll bring a lot of fertility in. And you go now. One more thing before I, I, I go behind this. If you're going to take the approach, I'm going to put chickens and seed. Put the chickens down. Let them do their thing and move them immediately when you move them, just small amounts of seed. Look for perennials that do well in your area, annuals that are specifically legumes and winter legumes going into the winter season, like bell bean, and, and perennials like clovers and perennial grasses. And annuals. There's nothing wrong with annuals. If you continuously graze the system, even just working with chickens, it will success over time into perennial. If you pasture a thing, it will become a perennial pasture. That's just the the way forward. But that's what I would take. Don't use huge amounts of seed. If you go buy enough seed to seed three acres right now and you don't do any disking, anything, you're just going to run chickens through it, you're going to spend a lot of money on seed, and most of it will never germinate. So small amounts behind the animals would be the best way to go. And, again, I agree with Darby. If you can get ruminants involved in this, some hair sheep like uh, St. Croix or uh, Texas Dorpers do really good, something like that, that would be great. But don't do it if you don't want to. Next up, we all get to points where we have to make tough calls. And sometimes a tough call is, I need to stop doing this. And sometimes it's a big decision. Thinking through that can be difficult. This one came in for me, but I kicked it over to Nicole Sauce.
6: Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast and Holler Roast Coffee and Queen of the Side Hustle slash Business Startup Encouraging Networks. I've got a question from Will today and I wouldn't normally read something this long, but I wanted to read this to y'all and I wanted to read this to Will so that both you and Will hear what Will has to say. So here's the question. How do you determine when it's time to abandon something that you've sunk a lot of time and resources into and move on to the next thing? I've already spoken with just about every peer that I can think of in my area, and I don't feel like I'm getting the proper impartial kick-in-the-ass perspective I'm looking for. I figured you'd be good for that. I know this is going to, be, to vary for everyone's specific solution, so that's why I've got a short novel below trying to lay out my circumstances. Pros, cons, and whatnot. The backstory. I'm currently the owner of a coffee shop, and arts performance venue at Lake of the Ozarks. We've struggled through the past few years, but are currently the most profitable we've ever been. The trouble is that the big part of the reason we've actually started to show a profit is because I'm devoting almost all my time and energy to the business as free labor. Red flag, I know. Okay, so um, it's not profitable if you're not paying yourself and also making a profit. I've been trying to hire and help, but like a lot of other folks these days, can't seem to get anyone on board who's willing to show up or work when they do come in. I, I know this is unsustainable, and I honestly would have quit a while ago if not for complicating factors, the complicating factors. I already have a pretty successful property management business, and I'm, I've am i been operating it for the past 10 years, as well as other revenue streams. I don't need The coffee shop as a revenue source. The main reason I'm doing it is to provide the community with a unique gathering place and hub for local creative folks, smaller touring acts, etc. It's something that has never existed here. So getting some momentum, especially after the wind got knocked out of our sails in 2020, has been an uphill battle. Through my visibility at the shop, I've made some good contacts and have had opportunities arise as people have begun to see me as the go-to guy for certain things, which I find valuable, though I, admittedly, don't take as much advantage of it as I probably could. The community is finally starting to embrace the place. I've got so many requests for show bookings that I can't keep up with them, and I don't have enough reliable staff to run the shows. And I've been grinding for about four years, pretty much totally burnt out. Dilemma. I have a couple of ideas I could implement, I believe would make the place even more profitable. It would take some of the day-to-day burden off my shoulders, but they all require significantly more investment mentally and in money than I've put in so far. I know I could do that work, invest that money, and really probably pay off for this business. I don't know if I should right now, as I have a couple other projects I would rather do. Primary other project. In January, I bought a large homestead. I am now going to summarize, guys. I bought a large large homestead and have not had the time to put the things in place like fodder tree systems and a food forest and a permaculture plan. And I have not yet had Nick Ferguson out, but I want to. And if I invest time and money in this other business then I will not have time to do things like plant bare root trees. In fact, I bought a bunch last year and didn't get them in the ground in time because this other business is taking all my time. Been listening since the TDI days. I appreciate all you do. Hope to to make the next workshop will. Guys, do you know what I'm going to say here? Will, you don't want to be running this business. You said it in your very first sentence that you basically don't want to run this. Why is this even a question? If it's successful right now and it shows a profit on paper, can you sell this business to somebody? And then it's going to probably fail unless it's somebody who really wants to do it. Or do you just walk away? It's very clear to me in everything you write that you'd rather be focusing on your other business that makes you money and developing your large piece of property into the life you want. This is a distraction. It doesn't matter if you've gotten opportunities there or not. I can tell you don't want to be doing it. And moreover, it's obvious you don't need to be doing it. And we're not even sure you're making a profit. What are you doing even asking this question? And really, in answer to your first question, how do you know if it's time to move on? First of all, you can look at your finances And C, is my return on investment and my time and money worth what I'm getting out of this thing? Is there anything I can do to change that? And do I love what I'm doing enough to push through the blech? That's how I make that decision. And if any of those three things don't look good, well, I guess if the spreadsheet doesn't look good, but I do know what I can do to turn it around, I will push through but if, but if the second and third are not there, and I see other opportunities where I can put my time and do better for myself spiritually, mentally, and financially, I move on. And I do my best to move on in a way that doesn't screw people over who were involved in the project with me. But that's it. I hope that was enough of a kick in the butt for you. Passion does matter, in my opinion, in what you're doing. And you clearly don't want to be doing this. Make it a great week.
0: So, there's a reason I gave that one to Nicole. Because I knew exactly what she would say. Because I knew it would be exactly what I would have said. And I knew that if she said it, people would be like, that is stern but wonderful advice. And if I said it, people would have been like, why is Jack such a dick? So... (laughs) Being a little bit more type A and a little more extroverted, I I tend to make people upset or cry. And Nicole has a way of saying the exact same words in a little bit different way that's a little bit better received. So I concur 100,000% with Nicole's advice. I just know if I said it, it would have sounded a hell of a lot more <laughs> harsh than that. Anyway, moving on, let's talk about the spacing between swales, and back to the earlier person uh, that Darby and I did what we could to help. This is the kind of thing that of why I would have Nick Ferguson look at any really big project if he was anywhere near where I was at.
7: All right, and Nick Ferguson again with another answer for you guys, and this one is from Lucas, and he writes, How far apart should swales and fruit and nut trees be? Uh, this question is for Nick Ferguson. The area is a square with about 300 foot to a side. It's pretty flat overall. We want to dig a bunch of swales and fill it with fruit and nut trees. Would it be best to have more swales that are close together or less that are farther apart? And should we randomly plant all the trees pretty close together, see what is doing well, and then thin as needed? Thanks. Um, well... <laughs> As you guys who have been listeners for a long time know, the phrase we're all thinking right now, so I won't say it. Don't say it, Nick. Don't say it. Uh, it, it depends. Sorry, guys. I tried. It depends. I don't, Man, this is really hard to answer because it so depends. But I'll answer the best best I can. Uh, Luke, Lucas, you didn't give me any details. I don't know where you are, what kind of soil you have. What kind of rainfall you have, what kind of irrigation you have access to, so we'll just use some general uh, general qualifications. If you're in dry lands, like desert type environments, or just low rainfall areas, or very seasonal rainfall, so you know if it's coming down a whole bunch in just a short part of the year, and then it's dry for the rest of the year, then you want a lot of swales to catch the one or two rainfall events and use all that water to your best advantage. If you're in highly permeable soils that's sandy, like me, and have the option to flood irrigate with higher volumes of water from a pond, for instance, I'm on a 1,300-acre reservoir, then lots of swales would be nice because you can set them up to have one discharge and domino the water downhill through the whole system just like Jack does at his place. If you have heavy clay soils and you're in a temperate climate with good rainfall, let's say you're in Missouri, and, uh, and you have those heavy clay soils, then you probably don't need swales. If you're in low-lying ground with periodic flooding or soaked soils, and they're just completely inundated, well, then you probably do want swales, even if you have heavy clay And the reason is you can concentrate the water and get tree roots out of the saturated soils because you can use the dug soil to build up a mound and get those tree roots up and out of the saturated soil so they don't rot. I mean, there's dozens of variables to take into account before we can really answer the question of to swale or not to swale. So I can't really advise you one way or the other because I really don't know any of the qualifying characteristics. Now... As for spacing, for optimal spacing and fruiting, you really should leave the distance between the trees according to their maximum sizing and then give them a little bit more space too because we want light on the sides of the trees and not just the canopies touching. So let's use an example. Let's say we're talking about pecan trees because you said nuts and they get to a maximum of 70 feet, 75 feet. We'll just say 70 because that makes the math easier. We take that and we split it in half and we get a radius of 35 feet. That means that tree is going to be reaching out away from it with a canopy that's about 35 foot in any direction. You have to have your pecans planted at least 35 foot away from the canopy of any other tree or else it's going to overshadow it and dominate that space and kill the other plants. If we're planting pecans as overstory, then we need to have the pecans spaced at 70 foot because they take that, you know, we're going to take that radius and we're going to double it to get both canopies touching. Now, like I said, that's not optimal because you actually need some extra space in there to get light down to the lower part of the canopy. So it's not just at the top part of the canopy. So let's go back to our radius of 35 foot. And then let's say we have some other trees that we're going to want to get light to. We're going to, I don't know, plant an apple that has a diameter of 14 feet because it's a semi-dwarf. Well, half of that is the 7-foot radius. So we have a pecan planted next to an apple. They need to be planted at 35-foot radius plus 7-foot radius equals about 42 feet to get the minimum spacing between those two trees. So... Once we understand that way of thinking about spacing, let's get back to your question on the whole swales and spacing thing. You can plant only the final overstory trees and wait for them to grow in and maybe only put in a couple swales. might be two. Or you could stack functions in time and add as many additional swales as it makes sense given our prior coverage of the matter and put in the overstory pattern and then lay over that or kind of under it um, that 20-year pattern of those big overstory trees that are going to dominate the whole space 20 years from now. And we can add in kind of a three-year pattern by adding in smaller fruit bushes, you know, uh, bramble berries and blueberries and strawberries things that will grow and mature and provide crops for a dozen years while the big overstory trees are maturing. And this way, you get maximum yield out of the space for the most time. You might not need those swales later on. They might end up just getting kind of smoothed out and done away with once they're shaded out completely. But in the meantime, we have a short-term crop, we have a medium-time frame crop, and then we have that long-term overstory crop that is the, the bigger vision down the road. The short-term stuff gets shaded out and replaced maybe with grass or other shade-tolerant forbs. And maybe the whole space transitions from that smaller fruit yields into a savanna grazing with the fall mass drop after 20 years. Maybe it's just a, a shady, um, brown, dead-leaf understory forest that's a complete canopies touching over story and almost nothing grows underneath it because you have these giant massive beautiful nut trees that are completely shading out the space underneath it and it's nice and cool and so you transition to i don't know growing some you know putting mushroom logs underneath them i don't know so uh to recap I have no idea if you should put swales in. It all depends on soil type, climate, rainfall, couple more factors. So you'll have to study that one out. Or, I mean, you could always sign up for a distance consult, and I can go over those details personally with you. Um, however, I'm starting a major product, <coughs> product, um, a project on the East Coast for uh, a guy who's practically a billionaire. So um, my time might be limited. The rest of the year because i think this is going to be a lot of work a big project uh, but feel free to contact me with distance consult in the subject line just in case i have time to fit you in someday um, but when it comes to spacing you want to find out how large the plant eventually grows you measure that out don't overlap canopies unless you have to cram stuff in tighter for some other reason which is fine it's just not optimal Um, it's always best to give them a little bit more room to spread out so you get more production from each plant. So that's about all I have for you, and it was a little bit of a long one. Sorry, Jack, but it was a bigger question. I'm Nick Ferguson from homegrownliberty.com. You can email me directly by sending an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com. Do good things.
0: This is why on-site consultation or even remote consultation with property walkthroughs and video and landlays is so valuable. It's why you pay people like Nick. Uh, No, you can't pay me to do it. I don't do it. It's not my profession. I think if you're going to be doing consulting, then you should be doing it as a profession. It is not – I mean, if you're going to transition and you do it as a side hustle, that's one thing. But a permanent side hustle as a permaculture consultant, I do not – Think you should be taking people's money to design land. You can give them some ideas and stuff, but not what I'm talking about here. And so that's why I really recommend, you know, that if you have a, a project that you want, you're going to put some real money into. I do have a couple additions on this though with with the swales. One, I, to swale or not to swale, I did a Shakespearean thing with that years ago, and I can not find it. I'd love to find that someday and play that again on the air. That was pretty funny. I don't know they could ever do it again. But the second part is. More of how to think about this, and Nick said it without saying it, but I like to take things down to very cut-and-dry, easy-to-remember terminology. Because he explained, this is exactly what he explained, he just didn't break it down into 30 seconds, of there are only three things you can do with the space between swales that we call the inner swale. You can graze it, you can crop it, you can fill it. That's it. I learned that from Jeff Lawton. Graze, crop, fill. Now, graze could be meat, chickens, and a tractor, relatively small property, lots of chickens, no problem. It could be ruminants. It could be cattle, or it could be sheep. It could be whatever. It can be mowing. In my instance, it's mostly ducks and occasional mowing. This year, there's no mowing because nothing's growing because everything's dying. You know, just like not, no matter what you do, nature can ruin it for you. Understand that as well, right? Um, but yeah, you can so when you if you're gonna mow it to keep it open, then that's that's mechanical grazing. So you can graze it, you can crop it. Now you can alley crop it, like when Marsh Shepherd built New Forest Farm, he was growing like asparagus and zucchini in the alleyways of the inner swale until he started making money on the grazing animals and the chestnuts and the apples and all that, and then he quit doing that and went to straight grazing. So you can crop it. You can crop it permanently. Or you can crop it for a time. So things like berry bushes in the inner swale being managed long-term, short-term, whatever, that would be cropping it, right? So graze it, crop it, or you can fill it, which is we plant trees in the inner swale and we turn the whole thing into forest. And it's all canopy. And that, if you just, well, what are you going to do? Answer that question. How? Which one of those three things am I going to do? And that will have a great impact On if you do swales, like should you, if you say yes and you should, then your spacing will have a great impact based on what your plan for management long term is. Next up, let's hear about inflation, the Inflation Reduction Act from John Pagliano. Hello, TSP.
8: Today we have a question from John in Moore Park, and he's asking about the Inflation Reduction Act. But before we get to that, let me just mention I haven't been very concerned or much concerned at all about inflation or about the hysteria that we're in or headed to a recession. And so over the past five or six months, as we've seen a great deal of volatility and downward movement in the stock market, as I've ignored the hysteria and I've dug down in the data, I didn't see a cause to be concerned with. And so rather than panicking with the market going down, I've been using that as a buying opportunity. And so far that strategy looks like it's working out because... At this point, it looks like we have had a bottom in the S&P 500 and the other major indices back in June 16th. In this short segment, I can't go into all the reasons that have caused me not to be concerned about a recession and inflation, but I will quickly cover these two factors. Number one, despite all the hysteria about rising inflation, it looked to me like the market indicators showed that the early signs of inflation was peaking back in March. And I say that because things like copper, gold, oil, the yield on the 10 year treasury, they all peaked in March. And then in the weeks and months following March, we saw other major industrial commodities and you know, things like steel, lumber, cement, those prices all peaked as well. And so I've looked at this period of extremely high inflation as just a matter of burning off the excesses that were caused by all the government intervention that's taken place during the pandemic, and that included both the artificial shutdown of the economy and then the artificial reopening and overstimulus of the economy. So I do think that inflation's peaked. I think it's fading. And as a consumer price index starts to roll over, you're seeing these large advances in the stock market as everybody else starts jumping in on that bandwagon. Now let me add here, too, that when I talk about it fading inflation – that doesn't mean that I think that prices are going down. So don't get me wrong. It's not like I think the people's purchasing power is going to get better. So in a year from now, if you're still spending $5 on a gallon of gasoline, you're going to be unhappy about that because it's twice as much as you would have paid for that gallon of gasoline in 2021. But from the Federal Reserve's perspective, they're going to take credit for a soft landing and for whipping inflation because in their language, they're going to say that they've created price stability. Now, those prices are twice as high as they used to be, but they measure inflation as the rate of increase. And because of those reasons and many others, I don't think that we're going to see a 1980s-type Paul Volcker increase in interest rates that go up to extreme levels. In fact, that peak in March of the 10-year Treasury at around 3.5%, may well be either the peak or somewhere around the ceiling for how high long-term interest rates can go, given the overall decline in demographics, not only in the United States, but the overall decrease in the birth rate globally. I mean, even right now as I record this, 10-year Treasury is back down below 2.8%. That's hardly at a stifling rate. It's going to choke off the economy. And again, one reason I'm not worried about an imminent recession. Now, as to the recession and slowdown in GDP and slowdown in corporate profits, that's the second reason why I've been pretty firm in my belief that this pullback in the stock market has been a buying opportunity. And that's because even though there's a slowdown in corporate profits, corporate profits continue to expand and grow. And they're expanding and growing based off of last year's profits, which were the largest in human history. And it's kind of counterintuitive, but one of the reasons that inflation has hit consumers so hard is actually an indication of how strong corporate profits are, not how weak they are, but how strong they are. Inflation has been so high because companies have been successful in passing along those price increases and preserving their bottom line profits. So while there's been a great deal of volatility and we've seen the stock market decline over the previous five or six months, that's turning around now because as second quarter profits have come in and as estimates going forward for the next 12 months are being revised, they're still forecasting strong corporate profits, which are more than enough to support S&P 500 valuations and prices far above where we are right now. Again, that's why the market's back in a rally mode. So bottom line for now, I continue to not be overly concerned with either inflation or or a pending recession. Not yet, anyways. I think the threats of a recession are far more likely as we get into 2023, and a lot of that could really be based on the outcome of the midterm elections and to what extent the current regime either gains or loses power. Okay, but I digress. Back to John and Moore Park's question. John says, Is there anything that we should do to respond to the Inflation Reduction Act as outlined by Glenn Beck? And then he attaches a video of Glenn Beck's review of the Inflation Reduction Act. Well, bottom line, John, I pretty much agree with just about everything, or if not everything, that Glenn Beck said in that video. I think there's virtually nothing in that act that's going to help reduce inflation. In fact, I think it will long-term make it worse. I think it will make it worse in the overall consumer. I think it's a boondoggle to advance the agenda of the crony capitalist interests that are involved in things like green energy, and healthcare and other aspects of, you know, the crony capitalist sector. I also think there's a huge emphasis being placed to double the size of the IRS, which further advances the police state. Uh, but the bottom line in all this is that I didn't have to waste 13 and a half minutes of my life listening to Glenn Beck complain about all the bad things that are in that legislation because I don't expect anything better from our politicians. In fact, I know they don't have my best interests at heart. And what you have to realize with any piece of legislation, what the ruling regime does is they have a series of agendas that they want to get enacted into legislation or policies that they want to see imposed on the people. And they wait for a crisis to emerge and then they craft emergency legislation and they always give it some catchy phrase to hoodwink the voters into thinking that the legislation is going to address the current crisis that's going on. And in fact, the legislation is just filled with all the preconceived agendas that the ruling elites wanted to begin with, and that's no different today than it was a hundred years ago. So I just don't dwell on those things; they're outside my sphere of influence. And rather than spend time talking or complaining or worrying about things that I can't control, I focus on the things I can. So John in Moore Park, you mentioned things like, you know, building community, growing food. Absolutely. Now, personally, for me, I would take that beyond just the bare essentials and the sustainability of you know homesteading and being able to raise your own food. And I think that really means that, you know, living in a modern society like we do, you have to know how to build wealth. And that starts with you increasing your skill sets so that you can produce marketable products and services either as an employee or as an entrepreneur. And by making that sacrifice and that investment first in you and then in other types of investments, you stay ahead of inflation and you can use that wealth to create a lifestyle to insulate yourself from the shenanigans of the politicians and the overreaching federal government. Well, hey, John and Moore Park, good to hear from you again. Until next time, this is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the wellsteading Podcast.
0: So this is a good lead into my segment, but I'm going to tell you that I am not – worried about inflation right now. I am worried about recession. I'm not worried about... Now, this is the other thing. You're you're talking to an investment manager when you're talking to John. So when you say, inflation, he's, he's thinking, will this screw up my investments in the next two quarters, which is exactly where he should be. I'm not worried about that. He's not worried about that. However, I am worried about looming at recession. Where we disagree is, I don't think it matters, and when you get to my segment, you'll hear why. I don't think it matters if the Republicans take the entire House and Senate, which will never happen, or the Democrats take the entire House and Senate, which will never happen. The real problem that is about to hit us like a sack of bricks to the balls is a housing market crash. And it is it is going to affect not just the housing sector as a thing, and real estate inventories as a thing, it's going to affect... Suppliers to the building sector across the board because this is the totality of what's going on. One, interest rates have come up, not to crushing levels, to historically normal levels, meaning the purchasing power of the average person looking to buy a house today, well, it has gone down dramatically. You go from people having interest rates under 3% to people having interest rates in the middle fives, and it reduces the amount of home they can buy by tens of thousands of dollars. Maybe even people that were up at the upper edge of like being able to buy like a $500,000 home, a full hundred grand, and what they can actually afford. Because, like I talked about earlier this week, it doesn't matter what the house costs, it matters the monthly payment. That's how people buy shit in America because we're economically illiterate. So, there's one problem. Two, people went so crazy buying houses that most of the people that were going to buy a house in the next two or three years already did. Well, now you got another two or three years with a lot less buyers. And most of the movement, if you were going to leave California because of what California did to COVID, you've done it already, or you're just talking out of your ass and you're not really going to do it. So a lot of the, the distance moving has already happened. The big influx to Texas and Florida, the big outflux from Illinois, New York, and California, that's done. So that movement is gone. Number three, builders did the best they could to capitalize on it and build as much housing as they could, where they could, when they could. And now that inventory, it's not just houses for sale, but new built housing, excess inventory is in play. Right? Not coming now. The other side in the building sector. So people that had contracts to build residential and commercial both, the thing that's been in huge short supply, lumber, um board board lumber and, and and sheet rock all roofing material nails, screws well, everything you build a house with hardware everything's in short supply what companies that had long term long reaching contracts to build did and I talked about this when it was happening I said this is going to come back and hit us in the balls what they would do is they would go to a company and say we need all these roofing supplies and the company would go great we can have them to you in 11 months and they go, oh, shit. And they would have to time their stuff and tell the customer, like, this is what we can do. So they would order that, and then they would go to a different supply chain and make put in the exact same order, and there's, like, standard restocking fees of, like, 5%. And they said, screw it. We'll take a harder hit if we can't deliver. So they have double or, in some case, triple orders with... Inflation adjustment clauses on the underlying commodity with their customers, and they're sitting there with two and three orders in for millions of dollars worth of shit. That one third to or two th- to one third to one half are going to be can One half to two thirds will be canceled. Now the supply chain guys have cut this off. Now they don't let people do that anymore, but they did, and now the councils are starting to come in. There is going to be deflation in the housing market. But at the same time, if you are trying to buy a house, the only people that are going to benefit from this are hardcore savers with good credit buying their first home or extremely well-off, well more mature buyers who don't want to sell their house in order to buy another one or don't need to sell their house another to buy another one. Or they have paid-for housing that's been paid for for more than 10 years. Or they have 25 years or 20 years of equity in it. Everybody else, everybody in the short-term mindset, I bought a starter home. You bought a starter home a year ago. If you want out, you better get out while you can, and it's getting harder and harder and harder. And this is the trap. And this is the danger. And then when you start having recession due to it, then you get defaults on property and the whole thing gets worse. And gee, all one need to do is look at 2007 to 2010 to see what our future is. And we're in late 2007 right now. And everybody says it's all going to be good. (laughs) Okay. You watch. When we've done a thing before... You can tell we're about to do it again. With that, let's go into my segment for today. Um, here's what I want to talk to you about today. If you, if you didn't see the title, No One is Coming to Save You. And in the show notes, where I have more room than the title of a video to put it out, what I said is no one is coming to save you. The only change will be the ones you make. And I think this is really important right now to understand. Maybe more important than it ever has been in in, in, in the history of, of most people who are alive OK, especially, you know, in their adult lives. I'm seeing a, a a kind of a rah-rah cheer victory before the contest even goes down from most of the people that fancy themselves as being liberty minded, yet call themselves Republicans. This is not political. This is fundamental reality. But I can tell what the belief is now. You know what, man? In November, the Republicans are going to take back the House, and they're going to take the Senate, and they're going to do investigations, and they're going to get these people, and they're going to disband the FBI, man, and then the orange man's going to come back in 2024. woo Okay, if that's you, I want you to put yourself in a box. I'm going to put some more people in a box before we get there. No, man, we got to hold on to it. This election's about a woman's right to choose, man. Right? Like, we're going to hold it, and it's going to be great, and it's going to keep getting better. And Joe Biden, man, he's the most successful president in history. You go in the same box, okay, with 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 the Republicans that I just mentioned. Yeah, you don't think you belong in there? You will understand why you in a minute. Now, if you are somebody that fancies yourself, dude, I'm an independent. I don't vote this way or that way. I make my own decision every year. Oh, you're the mushy middle. Okay, fine. But if you trust anything. The government says at all, without first ripping it to shreds with fact-checking on your own, get in the box. Okay, everybody in the box, right? It's a metaphorical box. I hope you didn't – if you actually got in a box, you're a special person, and and you can just forget about this, and I'm not talking about you anyway. But you're in the metaphorical – if you're in the metaphorical box right now, get up off your ass, put the computer, the phone, whatever you're listening to or watching this on down, open your door. Office door, house door, I don't care where you are. The car, pull over, get out of the car, go find the closest large tree, walk up to it like a good tree hugger, wrap your arms around that tree, squeeze it really tight, and sob with apology, and tell that tree, Dear tree, I apologize for wasting the oxygen that you produced so that I could breathe, because you're a freaking doorknob. If you go in any of those boxes, I don't care who the next president is. I don't care who's running the Congress. I don't care who's running the Senate. I don't care who they put on the bench. This is the problem. The state and 99% of the people that are the state are not elected. You don't know their names. They set and enforce policy and they don't give a shit about you. They exist like a colony of bacteria that exists for the purpose of the colony itself. Not even for them. They do exist for themselves, but collectively they exist to propagate a larger and larger colony. You could make me president of the United States. Maybe I can fix a few things. In the end, you're still screwed. You still have no liberty at all, no freedom at all, no independent thinking at all until you write me and the rest of the government off, even me. Don't care who it is. We get Ron, president, Ron Paul. Same thing. So if it's Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump, yeah. Now, would I prefer that to Brandon? Okay. I prefer to have the, uh, the temperature of the hot poker at like 200 degrees versus 700 degrees, but it's just, I'm still being tortured unless I decide I refuse. That's all you have. I refuse. I don't care. I don't even care anymore what laws they pass. I refuse. I don't care if they come up with a central bank digital currency. I'm not going to use it. Except if they give me some, I'll use it. I'll even use it for what they say. I do my business in other ways now, in an unstoppable way. You want to make something illegal, I'll fabricate it, I'll print it. You want to tell me that I can't buy meat, I have to eat bugs, or live on soy burger? I grow, produce my own meat. I build my own network of people to buy meat from. You can go screw. My goal is no longer to take over one side of the government or one piece of the government. hasn't been for a long time. My goal isn't to defeat them. My goal is to render them obsolete as much as possible with every single ounce of my being in my life. You notice I didn't say in our lives. Because I can't do that for you. I can't stand up for you. No one can. I can't be sovereign on your behalf. No one can. No one can. No one can do it for you. You want sovereignty, you have to claim it. I can't do those things for you. Ron DeSantos can't do those things for you. Pick your person that you think would make it. Cannot do those things for you. No podcaster, no politician, no in-between. No bureaucrat, no one. No one can do those things any more for you than I can wake up in the morning before sunrise, pour a hot cup of coffee, go out on my back porch and watch the sunrise for you and experience the joy and the beauty of the sun coming up and the colors as they begin to kiss the sky and to the point where the dew is burned off of the grass. It's a beautiful experience, but every single person must do or do not For themselves with that experience in your life, if you want food sovereignty, you must do or do not for yourself. Fighting the government won't change the eventual result as long as you allow the government to tell you what you can, can't eat, where you can and can't buy it and what you can and cannot have. If you want financial sovereignty, you need to use their systems and our systems. And yes, that includes Bitcoin for you reluctant holdouts. And say, I shall have what I shall have and you shall not take what I have. And the more tyrannical they become, the more you move into the parallel systems that are beyond their reach. If you don't think it's beyond their reach, you better educate yourself. Cause if you do it right, it is. That's, that's financial sovereignty. If you want sovereignty for your mind, you have to turn off the fucking television. Let me, let me say that again. Turn off the fucking television and stop. I don't care if you listen to Newsmax or Tucker Carlson or whatever, turn it off for at least three weeks. Don't listen to any of it. Don't pay attention to any of it. When you see a mainstream news article, that says Trump this or Republicans that don't even read it. Don't even look at it. Don't worry about it for the next three weeks. Focus on your own fucking life and maybe you'll get some traction. Get the baggage off the car. You're driving around in a car with dull, you know, bad motor, and, and and bald tires, and it's an old piece of shit, but at least it runs. Jettison the baggage, and you can get moving along. Eventually, you can afford some new freaking tires, and then you can get a new freaking car. And then, when you have a nice new car, then you can look at the TV again. Until then, focus on your own life, because all it's going to do is screw you up. You want mental sovereignty, you have to claim it. You want sovereignty and education for your children. You can, mama bears are attacking the school board. The bullshit, they're not changing anything. They're not changing anything in reality. Those teachers are still going to do what they're going to do, and they're still going to get away with it. And if they do anything short of robbing a post office, they're not going to lose their jobs. There's more of those complete morons out there than you think there are. And there's a whole bunch of teachers that are just like cops at this point. They don't want to do it, but they're following orders. They have to worry about their retirement, and they want to keep their jobs because that's the thing they'll get fired for, is not doing what the status quo requires of them. Yeah. So if you want that sovereignty, you have to claim it. You take your children away from them. Stop sending your, your children to your enemy to be educated, because that's the actions of a fool, in the words of Malcolm X. You make your change right now, this second, without another bit of bullshit excuse or you're script. And your life may seem okay. It may not seem that bad. You could be one of the kind of upper-level slaves. They might even take your chains off. You could have the keys to your fellow slaves' chains. You could be a good old-fashioned house slave. You're still a slave. you got to step out. you got to step out on your own. you got to stop thinking there is any solution to any of the things that you don't have that you want in your life that is outside your sphere of control. Sphere of influence is interesting. It's fun. It's why I podcast. It does have an impact on people. But the only reason your circle of influence matters is because you put touch people in touch with their own circle of control. That's the only reason I do what I do so that you will get in touch with that circle, whether it's how to build an aquaponic system, how to educate your children, how to educate yourself, how to fact check something for yourself, how to build a fire, how to build a house, how to stockpile food, how to have a garden. I don't care. You notice that every single thing I talk about always goes back to this is something you can do. You can't do all of it. You take your life. You take what we talk about. You take the pieces and parts like Bruce Lee's Jeet Kune Do that fit your design and your desire at the moment. You implement them. You judge with feedback whether or not they're moving you in the right direction. And you'll probably find some are and some aren't. Some are just not right for you. You jettison those. and you take another look. You take another look at the wardrobe that we provide, all the different options. You say, I'm going to try this one next. That worked. I'm going to try this one next. It really doesn't work here. Throw it away. Do something else. And you build the most resilient life you can. And when they say you can't, you say, stop me. And somebody will say, but they will. Well, they'll stop you. They just did. They stopped you before you even started. You quit before you even tried. And you know what? If that's you, you're not ready for what I do yet. You're not ready for what I do yet. If you've been here, like some of y'all, 10, 14 years, you may have started that way. But eventually, I got through to you. But until I did, I wasn't helping you. I wasn't helping you yet. We all have to cross this. In our own minds, we all have to have this point where we click and I'll tell you when it happens is when somebody says so and so doesn't pay their fair share of taxes. And you go. Nobody's paying their fair share because there's no fair share of theft. There's no fair share of theft. If somebody holds somebody up at gunpoint down the road from me. And an observer says, hey, go get he didn't pay his fair share. You think that was insane. That's tax. When you have that, when you realize and somebody says you can't do this, I'm gonna go do it anyway. I'm going not not out of spite because it's a bad idea. If somebody says, you know, you can't jump off a bridge and you go do it anyway. That's dumb. But things that are actually impactful in your life in a positive way, and somebody says, Well, you can't do that, or you're prohibited from doing that, you're like, Well, then I just have to figure out how. You get there, and then everything I'm saying to you. Right now today, makes sense. If you're sitting here listening to this and you're like, this guy's crazy, he's a maniac, why did my friend send me to listen to his video? You just haven't had that moment yet because this is what I'm going to end with today. Very, very difficult words for some people to hear. It invokes entitlement. There's no entitlement in it. You deserve what you want. The other side of it, if you don't have it, you haven't done the work yet. But you deserve what you want so long as you can do the work to get it, figure out how to make it happen, and you don't take from other people or hurt them. Then you deserve whatever you want in this world. If it concerns you to think that way, don't worry. You're a good moral person, or you wouldn't even second guess that. The psychopath doesn't if they've never been through this experience before, the psychopath immediately goes, Yeah, sure I do. Good moral people, the first time they hear those words, and it's never been explained to them this way before, they have a natural resistance to it. Well, not me. Yes, you. But the orange man won't give it to you. Brandon won't give it to you. Nobody in government will give it to you. Because what you actually want, whether anybody's explained it to you before in your life, what you actually want, what you actually crave is sovereignty. That's what you want. There's only one way to get it. Take it. So with that, let's go ahead and wrap up. Let me remind you guys, if you want to help support the show and the work that we do, one of the ways that you can do that is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. There you'll find all the items that I recommend. They're all items that I own, I've bought. I've used long enough to have confidence in them, and I write up a little write-up on each one of them as to why it is the value that it is and why I recommend it. You'll Even if you dig through the catalog long enough, you'll find things that are like, I used to recommend this, it's still a good product, but I found a better one. Or you'll find they don't make this anymore, and that sucks, but here's the best replacement. I I continuously update it. Today I have an item I've brought around many times, but I'm bringing it around today because it's on sale again, and this is not a time when a lot of things are on sale. Um, This is for you guys to do hydroponics or you want to try hydroponics. It's the General Hydroponics Combo Fertilizer Kit. Now, I'll I'll be honest. I generally myself use Master Blend, which is a dry mix. It's a little bit more work to make sure you get it to mix and to dissolve and things like that. This is a liquid fertilizer, and it comes in uh, basically three – it's a three-part mix. It's made up of Flora Grow, Flora Micro, and Micro is not micro, it's micronutrients – and flora bloom which you you give at the time that a blooming plant would be blooming. You may not need all three. Honestly, you can just use the fl- if you're doing nothing but greens, like you're doing quick turn lettuces and stuff, just the flora grow is all you really need. It wouldn't hurt to have some of the flora micro as well for a little micronutrient boost, but you really don't even need anything but the flora grow. But if you're doing, you know, broad scale hydroponics, the three part kit is just the easiest thing you'll ever use and it works wonderfully. Well, the three part kit that's the gallon size, so a gallon of each is on sale for like 88 bucks today. Mid 80s is the bottom for this product. I've watched the price on it since I first started recommending it in 2019. And since 2019, I've seen it hit like 83, 82 bucks here and there. It's usually over 110. So if you are doing hydro, you're using this or you want to switch to it or you want to try it, I'd give this stuff a try. Some of the other sizes are on sale today as well. You can find it at tspaz.com. Just click on the most current reviews or go to the survivalpodcast.com. Scroll down below today's episode, and you'll see it right there. Um, But I've used this. I've used the Texas Tomato Food uh, hydroponic uh, fertilizer, and I've used Master Blend. All three of them are fantastic, and you can find out about all of them in today's write-up. How do you make sure you don't miss stuff like this? Get on the Daily Mail. I, I can't stress enough how valuable it is to be. You can delete it whenever you're not really interested in what's on it. it. will. I will never give away your information. If you ask me if I will, I'm actually insulted, and I usually tell people, will you sell my information? Go screw. Go screw. I've been doing this for, for 14 years. I didn't do it so I could sell Bill's freaking you know, email address to, I don't know, Monsanto or whatever. Um, no, I would never give away my customer list. You know you're safe on my email list. Uh, just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Daily Mail, uh, which is you know, basically, it takes you to the survival podcast.com forward slash daily hyphen mail. Fill out one simple form. You'll get one email a day on rare occasions you get to. Mostly, it's one email a day, Monday through Friday. You get all just little bullet points, little blurbs. You decide what you want to look at, and you'll never miss stuff like this if you're there. The other way, get on the Telegram uh, channel, and you can find that at Get Social on our website. With that, I'll be back tomorrow. Not sure tomorrow. If it's going to be like I'm going to pick a subject and take it apart like I did Monday, or it's going to be more of a variety show. I'm leading variety show out back with Jack Style. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
3: You pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house. The American way a Dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay There's a better way to do this
2: Let me show you a better way